everyone, and welcome back to Salt Talks. I'm Rachel Pether, and I'm a senior advisor to Skybridge, based here in Abu Dhabi. Now, Salt Talks is a series of digital interviews with some of the world's foremost investors, creators, and thinkers. And just as we do at our Global Salt Conference series, we aim to empower really big, important ideas and provide our audience a window into the mind of subject matter experts. The focus of today's talk will be on pension funds and the approach to ESG investing, and who better to discuss this with than Ruskin Smith, the chairman of the Tesco Pension Fund and Tesco Pension Investment, the largest corporate pension scheme in the UK with over 350,000 members. Now, Ruskin wears a number of hats. He's the non-exec chair of JP Morgan Asset Management EMEA, a non-exec chair of Smart Pension and PTL, an independent trustee and chair of the Funding and Investment Committee for the BAE Pension Fund, governor of the PPI and chair of Grocery Aid, and he's also a former chair of the Pensions and Lifetime Saving Association. I've had the pleasure of knowing Rustin for a few years now, and he's an incredibly humble person, but I do want to embarrass him and point out that he recently won Pension Personality of the Year. And it was noted that he is a pension superstar and one of the nicest people in the industry. As always, if you have any questions for Rustin, please just enter them in the Q&A box on your Zoom screen. Rustin, you pension superstar, welcome to Salt Talks. Thanks very much, Rachel. By the way, I hear you had a trauma this morning. How's, how's your finger? <laughs> I did. I, um, I, I cut myself. My nickname when I was growing up was Calamity Rachel, so no surprises. Um, but, but before we begin, obviously we want to do a deep dive today into pensions and ESG investing, but maybe you can tell me a bit about your personal background. Um, well, I am that old. I've been in pensions and investment now for about 35 years. Um, so time flies when you're having fun. I spent 15 of those years as the group pensions director at Tesco. Um, and alongside that, I was also CEO of Tesco Pension Investment, which is the in-house SDA approved investment firm that we set up in 2012. Um, and I also had some people responsibilities and I was um, head of insurable risk as well. Uh, and I had a few other jobs um, along the way. I happen to be a co-sec of a, a FTSE firm, a FTSE 250, although I'm not a lawyer, I was also head of legal as well. As you said, I was chair of the Pension and Lifetime Savings Association and I chaired, or co-chaired I should say, um, the government's 2017 review of automatic enrollment uh, and led a few other initiatives as well. So it's been great fun, Rachel. Yes. So you've obviously got a number of years experience and I'm not saying that because you look old or, or anything <laughs> like that at all, but we've, we've had people on Salt Talks before and you know talking about some of the funding gaps in the US pension market. So given your perspective and your expertise in the UK and European pension market, can you talk us through the status of funds there? Like, does it show a similar level of underfunding that the US does? Yeah, so what I'd say, Rachel, is that certainly in the last few years, the, the funding gaps across Europe have uh, narrowed. Um, we've had some good investment returns. In fact, you know, over the last five years, as you know, the FTSE world has returned around about 12% a year. Um, Interest rates have, have reduced, so that means that gilt yields uh, have gone down, which naturally increases the cost of pensions, um, but generally um, funding positions have improved. 
However, at the beginning of 2020, of course, we're, with COVID, um, it was quite a challenging time. So what we did find is that, um, you know, assets fall back a little bit and those fun funding gaps opened a little bit wider. But to be honest, having spoken to a number of consultants across the UK just over the last week, I think the, the view is actually they've all come back. So we're probably now back in the position that we were last year. So, you know, that's, that's a, a great position to be in. Of course, uh, you'll hear accounting deficit information from CFOs when they announce the results. A kind of similar story, really, Rachel. They sort of uh, had a difficult first couple of months this year. Um, because simply, you know, yields fell down, uh, implied inflation went up and assets uh, fell at the same time. So those accounting, international accounting standards gaps uh, increased. But again, they've come up. Uh, credit spreads have widened a little bit now um, and, and they're really pretty much back to where they were before. However, as always, as a caveat, it depends on the investment strategy, the extent of hedging and all that kind of stuff. So. Those funds that are better hedged, um, very good diversification across their assets will be in a better position than perhaps those that are less well-funded uh, and not so well-hedged as well. But probably one, one point to call out, just particularly in the UK market, is that you know, we have been on a program of de-risking. So that basically means that we've been moving from return-seeking assets like equities, into what we call matching assets. They're assets typically like government bonds. Um, so where the yields are sort of matching the discount rates of the underlying pension liabilities. And just going back to 2006, um, there's been a surprising change since then in the allocation to equities, when at that time we were around about on average 61% and the allocation is now reduced down to 24%. Uh, and a similar reverse story for bonds. So at that time in 2006, it was around about a 28% average holding, and that's now increased up to 63%. So you can see that there's been quite a significant amount of de-risking across the UK, and the pensions regulator is really keen that UK pension funds have a very clear journey plan, which basically is a plan to de-risk. So you get to a point of funding where essentially you can be have just a low dependency on the employer that supports that, that pension fund. Yeah, I'd love to go into a bit more detail about that de-risking side of things shortly. But, you know, you mentioned the 63% allocation to bonds. And I also want to go more into, you know, the, the areas of like lower growth and, and lower interest rates. But just taking a step back and looking at some of the macro recovery plans, that we're seeing post-COVID, what are some of the implications here? So I think, first of all, just to call out the obvious where, you know, we haven't really got the pandemic under control. Um, we're still waiting for a vaccine. And I'm sure that when that happens, um, we'll see, you know, sustainable rises in the market. It's really a very different challenge, I think, to the one in 2008, the financial crisis. And, you know, when I look at governments and the amount of spend right now, I see them sort of investing to survive as opposed to the investment that they put in in 2008 and beyond for growth. The IMF estimated more recently that countries across the globe have probably invested for COVID something like $11.7 trillion. That's, to put it into context, that's around about 12% of global GDP. 
if we go back to the financial crisis, the G20 countries, uh, their stimulus package was equivalent to more like sort of 2%. So you can see already the level of spending that, that we've had. I mean, in terms of um, the recovery plan and where we might go when, when we start to see some light at the end of the tunnel, again, comparing it back to the last financial crisis, I think, you know, from my perspective and listening to people like John Allen in the UK, who's leading the sort of COVID recovery plan, getting business leaders together across the UK, I think we're really looking for a much more sustainable recovery and also looking at opportunities to almost leapfrog where we are to where we need to be. So investment, for example, in the likes of infrastructure, training in particular, because I think people will need new skills in the new world, digital and also technology. But of course, there's, there's still huge uncertainty. Um, and if we look at the sort of macroeconomic data at the moment, China's just come out and said that, you know, they've had growth of 4.9%. Um, now that's compared to the same time last year. Um, and that's been driven by industrial growth. On the other hand, you look at the UK and, and we are struggling. We've got growth month on month and quarter on quarter, but it, it's still behind where we expected it to be. And I think that, you know, when we look at 2020, we look back, the IMF is expecting that, you know, the globe uh, in total will probably have net negative growth um, and something similar to the Great Depression of the 1930s. So this is really quite a significant event and probably will find that China is the only major economy that will have any you know, year on year growth when we get to the end of this year. So a few challenges ahead. No, thanks, Rustin. And also I want to pick up um, a bit more broadly on some of the, the income generating points that you mentioned. We have had an audience question come in from Ken Lustig, which relates directly to what you were just talking about. And he said, so in this environment of potentially low interest rates over the longer term and the significant de-risking that you speak about, it'd be great to hear your perspective on how pension funds anticipate generating sufficient returns and being able to keep funding the pension obligation. So that's, that's a really valid point. Um, <clears throat> looking across Europe at the moment, there are some nominal rates, uh, some nominal yields, which are actually negative. But then when you throw into the mix inflation, you can actually see that um, yields, real yields are negative pretty much everywhere. So for example, in the UK, if you look at 15 year index link yields, their yield at the moment is minus 2.8%. So, you know, when you stand back as a rational investor, the question is, why would you invest there? The reason that pension firms do, of course, is because the value of their liabilities, the cost of the pensions that they pay are pegged to a discount rate that's linked to guilt, guilt yields. And therefore, it does make a lot of sense for pension funds to be investing in guilts. Because what happens is, you know, as the cost of your pensions go up, uh, so does the value of your assets if you're purely matched. However, coming back to the value argument, obviously there's a cost because if your returns aren't high, somebody has to pick up the cost of funding the scheme, which is typically the employer. So some of the larger pension funds in particular have been looking at what we call income generating assets. So it's kind of in the private markets, the alt bucket, and typically they have long-term contractual cash flows, uh, yields up to perhaps sort of, or total returns up to around about 6%. And what they are is a, is a kind of proxy 
for guilds. Clearly, they are not guilds. They carry more risk in a number of different ways. But they allow pension funds to invest in a different kind of asset class to try and have a proxy towards matching those liabilities and in doing that. So I, so I think, you know, I see more of those private market investments from pension funds, but particularly at the larger end. If you're at the smaller end, you're, you're probably going to buy out at some point and typically they like a bunch of gilts. So it's quite likely that lots of pension schemes will continue to buy the gilts that they need. So when you're talking about the income in the private markets, would some examples of that be like infrastructure assets or what would be some tangible examples there? Yeah, I think that's right, Rachel, sort of. Uh, infrastructure, um, long-lease property, although obviously the you'd have to look at the property market to make sure it's a sustainable kind of investment. But but something that, that is longish term, um, so that's 10 to 20 years, if you can get that, something that's got a good income yield so that you can also cash flow match as well as matching your liabilities, um, and then have something that generates a reasonable return. So with so many different variables to think about then, you know, Tesco pension as a global investor, how do you think about some of the key trends in, in the global markets? So I think just going back to the point earlier, Rachel, um, when we get more stability, when, when we've got positive news about a vaccine, I think we'll see greater stability of markets and also hopefully a, a pickup in those. Uh, PE ratios, I think, for the rest of this year will be lower. Inevitably, you know, we've had earnings which have been uh, stressed through lockdown in different countries. But also, I think that, you know, where we've had sectors that have been particularly affected, unfortunately, I think that M&A activity will pick up. So I think I think there's an opportunity there um, for that M&A activity, which might also have an impact on the number of stocks that we see on stock markets. Yeah, that's actually a great point, and I'd love to pick up on that because I guess it ties into your de-risking piece. With fewer and fewer public equities available, like are investors walking into some sort of concentration risk there, or how are you looking at the public equity market? So I think um, it would be a bit unfortunate if they walked into a con concentration risk. I think we've got good diversification. However, I think that inevitably, if we go back to the 1980s and you look today, um, the number of stocks that are actually quoted on stock markets, particularly in more developed markets, has reduced quite significantly. So I think in the US, for example, um, US stocks that are quoted have dropped from something like 7,000 down to around about you know, three to three and a half thousand at the moment. So that's, that's quite significant. I guess the, the other consequence of that actually though, is the concentration risk of larger companies. So for example, uh, you've got the FANGs in the States um, and you know, sort of six of the largest companies in the States, I believe representing like 50% or just less than 50% of the UK, US stock market. And equally across Europe, uh, we've got uh, large stocks called the Granolas. I think they were named by Goldman's at some point, always reminds me of breakfast, it's quite nice. Um, but they represent something like 25% of the market cap of the European um, indices as well. So, so that's a watch out because interestingly, if you've got a, a relative performance uh, target against a benchmark, 
you know, whether you hold or you don't hold those stocks has a really big impact on your performance. So it's another kind of concentration risk and an implication, I think, of you know, the changing dynamics in, in uh, markets. Yeah, I think that that question around how to benchmark when you have such a varied portfolio always comes up as a point of discussion and debate. Um, what does granola stand for, actually? What are the, the key stocks here? Is it mainly tech-driven as well, similar to the US? Yeah, I thought you might ask me that question. So, uh, so I think it's um, you've got Glaxo for the G, uh, Roche for the R, um, and then I'm going to have to check AMSL for the for the A, and then you've got Nestle, and I can't remember the rest. But that's not a bad shot at granola. So it's it's basically the names, the, the first letter of the names of uh, each of the largest companies uh, on the indices in, in Europe at a point in time, inevitably. As I say, named by Goldman's, I think. That's, sorry, I wasn't meant to give you um, such an on-the-spot <laughs> on the test there. But um, I just wanted to ask one more question on the sort of private asset side before we move into ESG. If you're looking at a greater exposure to the private market, how might this align with domestic government investment policy? So that's a really interesting question as we start looking forward at how domestic investment by governments is made. I mean, essentially, you know, they need to invest in the underlying economy, they need to create jobs. Um, and as I said before, it's going to be in the likes of infrastructure, training, digital and technology. Now, clearly, there'll be a lot of investment in quoted businesses uh, to, to leapfrog where we are today. But I guess that a lot will be invested in, in infrastructure, you know, whether that's digital infrastructure or, or whether that's the physical infrastructure of, uh, of different countries. And I think that through that, there will be many opportunities through private markets to uh, invest in opportunities for the future. And in fact, you know, even in the UK, the UK government have been encouraging defined contribution schemes where people pay in contributions alongside the employer um, because they're relatively immature and we've got people be paying in for decades. There's the perfect opportunity where you don't need the daily price and liquidity that you might do in other areas. So it's a good opportunity to invest in the, the underlying economy um, you know, and support startups and, and other areas uh, and build the country. But of course, like anything, uh, good diversification is really important. So not just between private markets, but also across public markets as well. So I think there'll always be a need for both. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, on the sovereign wealth fund side as well, we're certainly seeing that in the Middle East, back to your point about investing in physical infrastructure in the region, but also digital infrastructure through the venture capital. So certainly seeing that on a global perspective. When you're looking at the infrastructure assets, what sort of returns are you looking for there? Well, I think when we think of infrastructure, we think of two different things. One is income generating assets, another than people might call them secure income assets, it's another name for them. So for there, you might be looking at a total return of 6%, because again, you're looking at something that is a proxy to, to gilts, which at the moment um, are sort of sub, you know, 1% and in some cases negative, even in nominal terms. When you're looking at um, an alternatives allocation, then you'd be looking at double digit, ideally. Uh, but also you're carrying a lot more risk 
and duration is probably just not as important as income generating assets because they're there to do a very different job. And when you look at this sort of concentration or, or market consolidation, do you think that this will open room for more rapid growth of innovative startups? And thank you for your question, Philip. I think we, we'd need to encourage that, wouldn't we? I think that we've seen a lot of startups in, in the, the last few years as the economy really got going. Um, and there are so many amazing creative people. I think the, the key thing for me is making sure that we provide you know, the right capital at the right time to the businesses that can make that difference. Um, but I think that the appeal today perhaps um, would be for entrepreneurs to go down the private markets route um, and then perhaps IPO at the end of it, rather than going into you know, a quoted listed company, which of course has huge governance requirements and reporting requirements on quite a regular basis. So, and in fact, you've seen some entrepreneurs like you know, Richard Branson, for example, who was quoted at one point and, and has sort of delisted. And again, it's to take a longer term view um, and, and to manage businesses in a slightly different way, but without all those you know, very short term reporting requirements. Yeah, the companies are certainly saying private longer. I mean, you look at SpaceX raised its Series N funding round recently, and you know historically it sort of weren't up to like Series Series B or C, and now we're getting into the latter half of the alphabet already. I I do want to shift slightly into into ESG, and obviously pension funds with their long term view have you know can can make some long term investments. How was the Tesco Pension Fund looking at ESG? And maybe you could talk about balancing that out with the fiduciary duty as well. So I'll first of all differentiate between the defined benefits pension scheme at Tesco, which is closed, and where ESG is embedded into the investment process. Um, and that includes right across private markets, not just, you know, quoted equities, for example. And then we've got a what we call is a retirement savings plan which others might call defined contribution or dc but in tesco if i say dc um colleagues there think i'm talking about a distribution center so I, I have to make sure that i'm very very clear so we have we, we apply responsible investment to both um but they're applied differently so let's say on defined benefit uh, it's physically integrated into the investment process right across all asset classes Interestingly, on the Tesco Retirement Savings Plan, the defined contribution scheme, that's quite young, actually, Rachel. It's been set up in the back end of 2015, worth around about £2 billion today. And what we're trying to do is look at um, how we can apply responsible investment right across the asset base, 75% at the moment of which is passive, passively managed as opposed to active management. Um, we have spoken to our members to ask them what matters most to them around responsible investment. We've also captured the language that they use because the other point that we're very conscious of is there's a huge amount of jargon in the industry and actually in communications when we try and talk to, to members across the UK. And what we want to do is to make sure that we capture the language that they use and then we can talk to them in, in, in the words that they use rather than the jargon that the industry uses. As part of that, understanding what mattered most, um, we're looking at how we 
apply responsible investment right across the investment strategy, but at the same time, emphasizing the areas that mattered most to them. So we're going through a process at the moment where we are looking at how we can leverage that through all the different asset classes, how we can also align that through our stewardship so that as we are investing and as we are influencing companies and entities in which we invest, we can make sure that we've got a very focused uh, approach to what we're trying to deliver in the long term. And as part of that, of course, we're also making sure that we've got good, clear communication with our people. That's great. There's so many points within that I want to pick up on, you know, particularly when you talk about the allocate heavy allocation that you have to passive strategies, but also some of the private market points I think would be quite interesting to go into. So how do you think about ESG when you're looking at the, the passive fund that you govern? So, so I think that the, the way we look at it is, first of all, to apply it right across the portfolio, all the savings we've got. What I'm seeing in the UK at the moment is that, um, you know, a, a huge effort to focus on ESG and do the right thing. But it tends to be led by an allocation to an ESG product. So you might have a 20% allocation to a product, but then the, the other 80% is just essentially the rest. Um, what we're going to try and do is, is make sure it's applied uniformly right across the whole asset strategy. And that will mean probably a greater mix of active management compared to where we are today, but also just making sure the remainder of the passive is, is responsibly invested. And then, as I say, because we understand what matters most to our people, we're going to look at, for example, three themes are protecting people's rights. Um, so that was part of it including things like fair treatment of people, fair pay, human rights, working towards a better society. So caring for the elderly, health, education, future opportunities for all, and then protecting the planet, reducing plastic waste, uh, renewable energy and renewable waste. So we, we would look at opportunities to invest where they emphasize the areas that matter most. And as I say, then align that with the stewardship strategy that we have so that we're influencing in a very consistent way. And so just taking that and applying that to the private markets then, if you were investing in, say, a healthcare asset, like a, a senior person's home or something that fitted within one of those desires from your fiduciaries, would you take an active role in the management of that as well? Like, would you try and, you know, influence the company in certain ways or would it be more of an, an active, uh, a passive private market investment approach? Well, suppose it depends on how we've got exposure to that company, whether it's part of an overall product um, through an investment manager, a provider, or whether we've done it directly. If it was you know, direct investment and assuming that it was a sizable investment, you would hope to have that direct contact with them um, and influence them in the way that you could best. If it's through the, the fiduciary like a manager, um, then essentially, you know, you would have to monitor the manager and how they're doing that. But we're, we're going to, so it's an area that um, I think is quite challenging. And so, you know, it's an area that we're thinking about and, and sort of asking lots of questions globally to look at the leading edge way of managing those relationships. And we've actually had a question coming in from the audience. Thanks very much, Mark, who said, what's the most efficient way for a manager to create an ESG commingle fund 
given that, and I guess we haven't really touched on this point yet in depth, but given that ESG means different things to different allocators, should the manager plant a flag in the ground and say, in effect, this is what we believe, and then let the allocators decide whether or not they want to invest based on that? So I think inevitably, Rachel, that um, ESG will be generalized. I think one of the challenges we've got at the moment is that um, we, we all understand and know what we've got to do through ESG. I think what we're all still grappling with is, is, is a consistency around what does good practice actually look like? And then also, how do you measure that? So for example, one of the things that I'm considering at the moment, um, and again, talking to global partners is, what are the most appropriate metrics to use to measure companies and entities in which you are invested? Now, one, one of the challenges here is you could go to a company, in fact, you could have five or 600 pension schemes going to the same company, all with different metrics and saying, we think you should use those and we think you should measure yourselves against those and disclose them. The challenge obviously is they're not gonna do that. So what I'm quite keen on is looking for some global consistency and I know you know, there are entities out there trying to drive this through to look at what are the metrics that matter most, which then coming back to your question, um, provides the greatest future influence of change, delivers the future expected returns as well, because obviously that's important, but then builds a product which actually delivers on both. So it's a product then which essentially drives the returns for the customer but also at the same time, um, truly hand on heart, is going to deliver the most positive influence in the future. And so when you're looking at a commingled funds, I guess that ties nicely into what are asset owners doing collectively about ESG? I know there have been a lot of, sort of groups formed and discussions have been started. So you've got the One Planet Working Group for example, where six of the world's largest sovereign wealth funds came together to invest uh, in assets that could tackle climate change. But in, in your view, or what are you seeing in terms of collaboration between some of the larger asset owners, and do you think more needs to be done in this regard? So I think, first of all, I think more needs to be done. It would be better if we could have a much more collaborative approach. But some of the largest pension funds in the UK have been getting together, for example, to look at climate risk, climate change, and look at what is the best approach that we could all take. And then obviously we, we benefit from the scale that we create. And just going back to your earlier question on the, the commingled funds, it's, it's about looking at what is the change we want to see? Um, what are the things that matter most to members, which are then the ultimate customers of pension funds? and creating that proposition that really delivers for the customer. So, so I think that there are opportunities here, but I think it's part about, it's about listening, it's about identifying the right forward-looking metrics that will make the most difference in the future. And then building product and collaborating together so that the sum of our parts um, optimize the opportunity set in the most efficient way for corporates. So what are the smallest number of metrics that will make the biggest impact? And we can measure them and we can work and get behind them. And are you seeing any negative unintended 
consequences of the ESG investing. You know, there's been a lot of sort of corporations, um, you know, being accused of greenwashing. What do you see as some of the downsides associated with this? So I think I think sadly inevitably there there will be some greenwashing. There is some greenwashing. Um, I, I think that the point that I'm more reflective of is whether or not, with all good intentions, collectively pension funds rush to be net zero or, on emissions and carbon. And and if they do that really quickly, as I look at the whole global uh, corporate environment, all the companies around the world you're inevitably going to have sectors that are able to lead. You'll have companies which perhaps are not in the right place to be able to be part of that leading pack. And and I guess the concern I've got is, could we be in a position whereby we put all our money behind the companies that will naturally be the leaders? And then what's the consequence for those who have all good intentions, but are starved of capital and unable to catch up? So I always, in the ESG, my mind is around the yes. What happens to people and jobs and, and communities and environments if, if we just focus on you know, the, the leaders globally in, in this space? I'm hoping that won't happen, but I can just see potentially where pension funds want to be doing the right thing and get down to net zero and do it as fast as possible. I do question what about the rest and where will they get their capital from and will they be sustainable entities in the long run? Yeah, I guess that's a really interesting point about the intent of the companies, right? Like if, if they have an intent to, you know, focus on the E and the S and the G and it doesn't quite come to fruition, then who's, whose responsibility uh, is that there? But I guess as long as the, as long as the intent is, is there, you know, there, there's a will, there's a way. Um, we, we have another few questions that have come in from the audience, some are specific and some are broader. So I'm just going to ask a couple of the specific questions first. Um, when you're looking at some of the uh, concentration risk within the granola stocks that you talked about before, how are you seeing the pension funds balancing out some of these risks? Are they doing that like with more hedging or it's more just through diversification of other parts of their portfolio, for example? So I, I think that in you know the defined contribution world, there's a lot of passive investment, so they just hold everything. So that in a way that doesn't really matter. I think you know when you go to active management, one of the challenges is um, you know how do you avoid it? I think when you look at regional um, equity allocation, in other words, you are trying to perform against the benchmark for a particular country. That then becomes quite challenging because you know if you've got some dominating stocks of six. There's a real consequence as to whether you hold or don't hold those stocks. Equally, to be honest, even on a global basis. But what I see more of now, moving away from a more traditional model, is that equity mandates are more global. Um, and, and therefore, you know, you've got wider choice and it dilutes the impact of those, those larger businesses. Having said that, we know that, you know, I think it's the top five. Um, stocks in the US are worth something like $4 trillion. So even globally, when you look at the FTSE or world, they're still you know, a very big part of it. But I suppose it's, it's like anything, it's just managing the risk, good diversification, um, and, and just thinking about the very long-term philosophy that hopefully you're trying to adopt. Thanks, Rustin. So we, we have time for a couple more questions. So when you're looking at the 
the long-term philosophy, what do you think might surprise us in the next, say, two to five years? So I think, I think first of all, um, I'm quite optimistic. Um, I'm hoping that what we've seen in the early part of this year, so I'm going to think of the, the canals in Venice and how clean they were when they weren't used. Um, we can see the, the air in, and the pollution that's been eradicated in different parts of the world because we took cars off the road. I'm hoping that as we invest in this new world, as we come out the other side of COVID, uh, we will do so in a very sustainable way, in a way that you know, we will invest in technology, we will invest in the planet, you know, cleaner technology, uh, and we'll accelerate that. So I'm actually hopeful that you know, all those things will be positive. I guess that you know, the bit that concerns me in the short term are the social aspects uh, around the world. Inevitably, even in the UK, you can see unemployment increasing and the, the, the social implications of that with people not having enough money. And then it's how do we you know, create an accelerated approach to injecting capital to places to help people retrain very quickly and then importantly, get them into jobs. I think that the other thing is that I'm quite hopeful that people who have continued to save through the crisis, uh, and particularly people that put money into their pensions at the early part of this year, when we get back to where we think we're going to be, hopefully they'll have a nice sort of pickup in their retirement savings. So um, a nice little incentive for the future. Well, that's actually a really optimistic note, and it would be a good place to end. But we have actually had a question that I think is highly relevant. So Mark uh, Burbeck, thank you so much for your question. Uh, just as a counterbalance to the de-risking trend that we're seeing, do you think there's a role for pension funds to be entrepreneurial and support young businesses with capital, which I guess sort of ties back to your previous comments um, about investing in innovation? And then what is the future DNA of pension funds as an investor? So a good question. I'm going to split this between two types of pension fund. So I've got defined benefits who really are trying now to get to a place where they've got little or no dependency on their employer, which means that they will be de-risking. And so um, they will invest in private markets for sure. And as I've already called out how they'll do that through income generating assets. But I think the future for the, for the investment um, particularly in startups, as, as the caller has described, is in the defined contribution market. We've got lots of people investing money with very, very long-term time horizons. And this is a perfect opportunity with a good manager that gives good diversification lots, across lots of ideas, acknowledging that sadly, yeah, there will be defaults, um, that we can invest in entrepreneurs in the underlying economy and then drive that through to get to a much better place. Um, and, and we do have the funds going in. There are lots of savings going in. We've got, we're building assets in the UK really quite quickly in defined contribution. Um, we shouldn't get hung up on daily pricing, particularly for the younger end. But there is a huge opportunity. But I think to some extent, there'll be a change in mindset from where we are today. But, it, but it's one I know that the government's behind, which is a very good thing. And could you also see this sort of investment in startup? I mean, that could fall under an ESG remit, couldn't it? Because it's, it's that social side of supporting young entrepreneurs, kind of capital for growth, as it were. Yeah, and I think actually, Rachel, that the new world is should be about sustainability. So any startup 
should be thinking about you know the learnings from the experience we've just had um thinking of the future and to be a really successful sustainable business uh, will be all the good elements of esg so to bring that together will be an attractive proposition for a pension fund obviously providing that the idea is good in the first place because we do need to make money absolutely so <laughs> That's true. You need to pay those pensioners because that would probably cause even, even even greater social unrest. Yeah. So we have time for one more question, and my question is: Why do you not have your recent Pension Personality of the Year award up on the bookshelf behind you? So I'm um, really simple answer: It hasn't arrived. <laughs> it's in the post, apparently. So I'm very excited. Thank you. Excellent. Well, maybe we'll need to do a follow up, and you can have it have it in the background, but. Rustin, thank you so much. I knew it would be a lot of fun talking to you today. And thank you for your, your insights and your eternal optimism. <laughs> Thanks very much indeed, Rachel. I hope you think it gets better.